Well, it's good to be with you this morning. As Josh said, I've known Josh for a good long while, and it's been a treat. Um, I, I remember when we were uh, talking about Josh coming to seminary, he came the year after I came, and uh, he and Mandy sat down and said, you know, we, it, it might be the time. You know, we don't, we don't have any kids yet. We, we might, like, have a, 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 a window before we start settling down that seminary would be a good idea. And um, Abigail was born uh, halfway through the first semester of seminary. So shortly after making the commitment to go to seminary, the other things happened. And, uh, and I, I remember the, the beaming look on Josh's face as he ran out of Old Testament, inter, or, uh, Old Testament survey to, to uh, go meet Abigail. And um, got to also meet Jack before we graduated seminary. And uh, got to hear the story of the possibility of Redeemer 30A coming into existence. And... Uh, when I tell you I, I love the Poole family, I love uh, being Uncle Timmy, I love getting chased around by her at, at the seminary campus, having Josh uh, stand with me at my wedding, but I, I also love this church. Um, y'all don't know me and I don't know you very well, but it's been a deep delight to see the Lord bring together this group of people um, to covenant together to, to be a, a, an expression of the kingdom in South Walton. And I, I'm at a different expression of the kingdom. I'm in Winston-Salem, North Carolina right now. Um, and uh, at, at a, a downtown church called First Pres, and, and it's always a, a joy to uh, get a little bit of a zoom-out lens and realize that God is a God who's at work in local churches around the world, uh, not just across state lines, but also in Ecuador and in Egypt and, and everywhere in between. So this morning, even though we don't know each other that well, I, I hope we can celebrate together that we come together under the same God, with the same Lord, uh, looking at the same text, and, and hopefully the Lord will, will speak to us this morning. That sound like a good idea? Cool. So, so you, you heard the word read, and I, I just want to start off um, by setting the scene for our exploration of, of Philippians 4. Um, before I went to North Carolina um, to, to pastor in Winston-Salem, I was pastoring in a small town in Georgia, a little bitty town called Peachtree City, and uh, I was there for two and a half years as a single guy. And uh, I'm pretty sure for those two and a half years that my church was convinced that as a single guy, I was starving. I was incapable of feeding myself and had no uh, capacity for self-care. And so what they did in order to make sure that I uh, didn't keel over from lack of nourishment, any time that there was a, a picnic uh, or a potluck or any kind of celebration with food, all of the leftovers were packaged and sent home with the guy that probably is, you know, fasting three or four times a week because he doesn't know how to work a stove. And that wasn't true. I, I knew how to cook and enjoyed cooking. I wasn't great at it, but, but I could do it. But I wasn't about to disrupt that system. So I just let that roll. Because um, y'all know, I mean, nobody brings their, like, experimental recipes to the potluck. Right, church potluck is time to bring your A game. You're bringing the generations deep grandma's potato salad. And that stuff is spiced within an inch of heaven. And it's pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that's what manna tasted like. Right, so I lived off of that for two and a half years. It was great. Um, but after two and a half years, um, my fiance Kendra, came home. She was a missionary in Greece at the time. She, she moved to Georgia, and we were a couple of months from getting married. And, uh, and we realized very quickly that this system of Tim getting all the leftovers needed to change. And so I'll set the scene for you. I, I walk into my apartment. Kendra's living a couple of blocks down. I walk into my apartment with a vat, and I'm talking a vat, y'all, of smoked Gouda pimento cheese. Right? I mean, come on. That's, this, there is nothing better than cheese, mayo, and whatever pimentos are. And that thing, I mean, it's just, 
it is, it, I'm ready for dinner, and it's probably half a gallon, I mean, some unearthly uh, amount of cheese that no human is supposed to make, uh, to eat in one sitting, but, you know, I'll try. And so I came home and said, hey, guess what we get to eat for dinner? And I showed her this mound of globuled cheese, and, and Kendra was less than impressed, and said, I, okay, I appreciate the gesture, this is a nice gift, we can tell people thank you, but can't we eat apples or something? I mean, let's have something that, that's a little more healthy. I, I, I really don't want you to have a heart attack by sitting down and eating all of that cheese. So let's do a thank you, but we don't really need this next time. Let's start setting some better expectations and boundaries on all of the leftovers you're going to take. You can share. Right? You ever been in a situation like that? You get a gift and you appreciate the gesture, but it's like thanks but not, I just, I don't really need it, no, no thank you. I mean, it, it can be an odd situation to be in, a thanks but no thanks moment. At, at first glance in our text, it looks like that's what Paul's talking about. It looks like Paul's got a thanks but no thanks moment. He, he starts off saying, I re- rejoice greatly in the Lord that at length you've renewed your concern for me. See, what had happened was the, the, the Philippians were living a, a while away from Paul. He was in Rome, and, and the Philippians were in Philippi. It's in Greece. And they had just sent him a big old goodie basket with uh, food and, and, and some rent uh, money, actually, um, to make sure that he could pay his bills. And they sent a guy named Epaphroditus to take care of Paul, to check in on how he was doing relationally. And Paul is saying, hey, I appreciate you guys sending me the goodie basket. Thanks for, uh, for making sure I had uh, financial provision. Thanks for making sure that I had food to eat. Thanks for making sure that I was relationally well taken care of. But here's the thing. Thanks, but no thanks. In verse 11, it kind of feels like that, doesn't it? Not that I'm speaking of being in need. I'm, I'm supposed to be content no matter what happens. I appreciate your gesture, but I'm good. Now, if you dig a little deeper into the context of Philippians, that, that gets strange. It's one thing to pass up the, the globule of pimento cheese. It's, it's another thing to pass up something that you are desperate for for your daily life. See, Paul wasn't vacationing in Rome. He was under house arrest. Uh, he had he'd been arrested for preaching the gospel. It was creating public discord, and he was chained to a guard 24-7. That's quite the situation. And, and when you're chained to a guard 24-7, you don't get to go grocery shopping. You depend on other people providing for you with food, and providing for you with uh, uh, material resources so that you can actually have a, a roof over your head. And, and Paul's in jail. And, and he's not just in jail, he's awaiting trial and facing execution. Whoo! That's not exactly like comfortable living. And the Philippians, even though they're, they're, they're not uh, exactly in the best of circumstances, they're wrestling with their own stuff as well, but they send a care package at great cost to themselves. And the person that delivered the care package got sick and almost died himself. And Paul saying, thanks, but I don't really need your pimento cheese. I'm not entirely sure that's what he's saying. I mean, that, that seems a little odd, don't you? I mean, let, let's, why does Paul all of a sudden start talking about contentment after receiving a gift he clearly needed? Why would Paul start talking about being sufficient, being uh, 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 being stable, being content, being uh, happy with circumstances, being, being at a place of peace, even though he just got a, a gift that he was desperate to receive. That's weird. 
That's sort of the driving question of this text as we look at it. And, and, and in order to understand why Paul starts uh, all of a sudden talking about contentment, we need to understand what he means by contentment. Right? There's a particular definition of contentment that Paul is using that we tend to not use in our world. We tend to think contentment and we think good circumstances, right? You and me, I'm content with a book and a cup of coffee uh, at a coffee shop. And, and I'm not content when Florida State loses to Florida. That's, all right? I, that's just what it is. I'm content with my toes in the sand and sun on my face. I'm not content when it's hurricaning. That's, that's, it's circumstantial. But Paul is saying, no, there's a, there's a contentment that I am experiencing that transcends circumstances. There's a contentment that I'm experiencing that I want to tell you about. There's a contentment that I'm experiencing that's not about circumstances. Paul's contentment is not about circumstances. And if you look at the text, he explains it. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. I am in need, but I don't want to tell you my my delight is, is in my need being satisfied. I'm telling you in verse 11, I've learned to be content no matter what situation I'm facing. And, and if you think that he might be vague, he, he elaborates. Verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be brought low, and I know what it is to abound. Now, Philippians would have known this. Paul has been brought lower than many of us ever will experience, and he has abounded more than many of us will ever experience. When, when Paul was planting the church in Philippi, it's a couple of years old at this point, maybe about the same as uh, 38 in terms of its age at the time of this letter. And when Paul planted it, he he got in a little bit of a trouble with the town folk. They got mad at him because he was disrupting their economy by rescuing people from trafficking and a whole bunch of stuff. And so there was a point where, the, where a mob group rallied around him, stripped him naked, beat him publicly, and then threw him in jail to uh, be as uncomfortable as possible. Paul said, I know how to be brought low. Yeah. But he knows how to abound. He knows what it is to see somebody who goes from enslaved to demon possession, enslaved to uh, 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 adults who've been trafficking her her whole life, and this little girl that got him in trouble for rescuing her, she comes into the fold of faith. He sees this miraculous act of redemption, and this girl goes from absolute slavery to absolute life, and Paul knows what it is to experience the depths of low and the heights and the glory of seeing God at work. The Philippians, that's their story. They would know that Paul knows what he's excuse me, talking about. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be raised up. My contentment, Paul says, doesn't rest in either case. I can be content in prison. I can be content in the luxury of, of, uh, of, of life's goodness. He says, I've learned the secret. He keeps going. He basically says the same thing three different ways. I've learned the secret of being content, whether I ain't got a whole lot of food, whether I have lots of food, whether I ain't got a whole lot of money, whether I have lots of money. Paul's saying, I've got contentment that doesn't rest on circumstances. Here's the thing. We tend to rest our contentment on circumstances, don't we? I mean, I do. There's a great counselor and evangelical pastor by the name of Tim Lane, and he wrote this book called Unstuck. And he describes in it how humans tend to relate to their circumstances, how we tend to try and create contentment based out of our circumstances. And the first way we do it is what I'll call tunnel vision. Right? You ever been there? You got the one thing. 
that if you just get this one thing or if you just protect this one thing, you're good. So, so if you've got a, I'll be okay in life if, fill in the blank. You're a tunnel vision person. So for you kids that are like uh, just recently graduated high school and, and you were freaking out over the college you were going to get into and you'll just be content if, filled in that blank. Or you'll just be content if, uh, when beach season is now upon us, you look like you want to look in that bathing suit. You, you'll just be content if uh, you can bench press that extra 10 pounds or run that extra mile or have that extra bit of financial security or, or have the, the perfect kids uh, that, that achieve the perfect amount of stuff. There's a lot of things we can put in our tunnel vision. Here, 2018 was a tunnel vision year for me. So I, I got married, Josh mentioned, in 2017, towards the end of it. And three months later, we had gone through, I think, four out of the five most traumatizing life changes you could. We, we had a new job and a new city and a new house and a new marriage. We, we haven't had kids yet, so I hear that that's the one that we were really going for all five, but that's not what the Lord had for us yet. And when we went through all of that change, we, we really felt like, yeah, that's going to be a lot, but this is what the Lord's called us to. We just had this sense that God was calling us to serve Him in Winston-Salem. I was going to serve the Lord at a church in downtown Winston-Salem as an associate pastor. And, and Kendra had a calling to ministry as well. She had just finished serving as a missionary in Greece. And we weren't quite sure how that calling was going to express itself in Winston. But we were confident that God was going to have some kind of job and some kind of employment for her in Winston-Salem. And three weeks or so into living in Winston-Salem, it became very apparent that that was not going to be the case. Through a series of closed doors and surprise endings, we realized that moving to Winston might have a significant period of unemployment for Kendra. And when I see that, and I go off to work and leave for my fancy new job, and my wife, whom I love, is staying at home, I can't think of anything else. I feel guilty going off to work. Kendra feels uh, uh, really uh, discouraged staying at home, wanting to go to work, wanting to fulfill this calling she feels like she has. And, and it starts discouraging, and then the volume increases over time. Because what we start to say to ourselves is, once you get a job, everything will be fine. We just got to focus on the job. We started tunnel visioning on that circumstance. We started tunnel visioning on the one thing that's going to bring us contentment. And, and it just started shouting louder and louder, and louder. How am I doing on this mic? Is it being weird? Let it lay. All right, good. Um, and, and so, sorry for the technical difficulties. But what started as discouragement became an obsession. We couldn't talk about anything else. I couldn't think about anything else. We had to get Kendra employed. And you know, the ironic thing is, once she got a job over the summer, I became obsessed with making sure she kept the job over the summer. Tunnel vision is not satisfied. Paul says, I've been through experiences that would make any human tunnel vision. I've been through stuff that would make you want to focus and say, I've got to get this one thing. I've got to protect this one thing. And he's saying contentment can't be found in tunnel vision. Because tunnel vision is trying to control your circumstances. And it doesn't work. There's another way. This, this, this book uh, that I was reading called Unstuck says, some of you know the, the, the danger of tunnel vision. Some of you know the danger of zooming in and trying to control your circumstances, and you've already figured out, can't do that, bro. You can't control your circumstances. This world is unpredictable. What you've got to do is control the power of those circumstances over you. 
if you don't care about your circumstances, if your circumstances don't have that sense of power and angst over you, you're good. Here's the thing. In Paul's day, there was a group of people called the Stoics, and they had a word called contentment. And they defined contentment as the complete emotional withdrawal from any kind of dependence on circumstances or other people or relationships in general. If you are completely self-sufficient and don't need anybody or anything, you will be content. The world is unpredictable. Tunnel vision is bad. What you've got to do is take off your tunnel vision goggles and just put on blinders. You've got to put blinders on so that you don't focus on the circumstances, so they don't have power over you. Now, I'd imagine many of us in the room aren't, aren't students of stoicism. You might not you know, identify in that way. But I bet you might identify with wanting to distract yourself from the things that create discouragement, from wanting to emotionally remove yourself as far as you can from the things that you're tempted to tunnel vision on. Maybe if, if for you it's a, just a relationship with your boss. I mean, let's just go in the normal, ordinary stuff of life. Your relationship with your boss is not great. He's, he's, he's just super mean and kind of selfish and he's really hard to follow and every day you come home from work and you're just, you're just frustrated and, and you don't want to project all of that in your home life with your friends or, or the family that you live with. You don't want to, to, to just process how frustrated you are and just mull over and over and tunnel vision on how frustrated you are. So what do you do? Turn on Netflix. Create something that distracts you from that feeling. Or you, you pour a drink. And then another one. M- maybe another one. Because you know that that circumstance has the power to, to wreck your contentment, and, and you know you can't change the circumstance, so what do you got to do? You've got you to numb yourself to it. You've got to distract yourself from it. Let me ask you a question. When somebody, uh, you know, we, we do small talk in the South, right? So when we say, how are you, it's the same thing as saying, ha. You picked this up by now. But sometimes you get people brave enough to actually answer the question. And you say, how are you? And they say, not great. What do you do when that happens? Think about it. What's your instinct? Don't, 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 don't you go all like silver lining on him? Well, you just got to think positive, man. Like, I know that's terrible, but let me give you something to distract you. Let me give you something to, to shift your attention. I know that you just said you're suffering, but let me give you something that you can focus on that makes you forget about the power of that circumstance. That's blinders. What Paul is saying, there is a contentment that isn't dependent on circumstances, that's not dependent on tunnel vision that tries to control circumstances, that's not dependent on um, uh, uh, blinders that tries to, to remove the power of circumstances. There is a contentment not dependent on circumstances. Don't you want to know what that is? Come on. I mean, I want to know what that is. That's some crazy, supernatural, some kind of something contentment that's going on. And that's when Paul starts to sing in this passage. He says in verse 12, I know the secret of being content. I have something that I want to let you in on. The secret to being content isn't tunnel vision. It's not blinders. It's being in Christ. Contentment comes from being in Christ. Philippians 4.13 is one of those bumper sticker verses. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Woo! 
I'm going to teleport to Paris for coffee and come back for dinner. We look at it like a blank check from God. God will give you anything you want. God, you can do whatever you want because God is interested in changing your circumstances. Isn't that how we sometimes think about it? But in the context, it actually says something very different. What it says is, it seems impossible to feel content regardless of your circumstances. It seems impossible to try and find contentment that's not blinders or tunnel vision. It seems impossible, but it's not. For those who are in Christ, for those who are empowered by Christ, there is a contentment that transcends circumstances. Contentment comes from being in Christ. Now, this happens in two ways. The first way uh, is we turn down the volume of our circumstances. So we want to think audio. Turn down the volume of your circumstances. And the second way is you put a little earbud in your ear that gives you a lifeline to the good news. I want you to think about that in. Turn down the volume. Put a little earbud in. When Paul says contentment is found being in Christ, what he's saying what he's relying on is an understanding of life and of the good news that he's been elaborating for the entire letter of Philippians. And it's a technical theological term that that theologians call the already but not yet. Some of you are nodding and you heard it. The already but not yet. For those of you that don't know it yet, let me give you a quick summary. Imagine a little kid who skins his knee and comes running to mom. Right? Little kids don't know how to fix their knee, so they're screaming like it fell off, and, and they're saying, help me! Like, I don't know what to do. And as a good parent, what you would do is walk them to the bathroom, put some peroxide on it, which hurts worse than the wound did in the first place, and then um, uh, put some Neosporin on it, Spider-Man Band-Aid, kiss, and then what do you say? All better. I'll go back out and play. Right? Parents in the room, that's about right. Now, are you lying to your kids when you say that? <laughs> if they checked their Band-Aid when they left the room, is it all better? No. But does anything else need to happen in order for that knee to get better? No. See, the, the, the beauty of that metaphor is, is that it says there's this tension that we can live in in an already but not yet where nothing else needs to happen, but you've got to come back around to take the band-aid off and celebrate that the healing is finished. The work's done, but nothing else needs to happen. It's finished. It's already. It's, it's good, but it's not fully played out yet. And the text that you heard this morning uh, for our call to worship is Philippians 2, and it says that Jesus' work is done. It's finished. Nothing else needs to happen. The world is filled with sin and brokenness and it infects everything in our lives. Our rebellion against God is the source of the oppression of the world, of the broken families that we have, of the family members that have experienced death, of all of the things that are wrong with the world. At the heart of it is a broken world filled with people who don't live according to God's ways. We've rejected God as the creator and source of life. And so we accept removing ourselves from that life. That's why the, the wages of sin in Scripture, the wages of sin is death. Sin earns death because you cut yourself off from the source of life. And what Jesus did is come down and see a skinned knee called sin. And he, 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 he laid himself over it on the cross. And he's the Neosporin. 
and he, and he, he put his Spider-Man band-aid on it and he kissed it. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he said, all better. It's done. Nothing else needs to happen. The sin and the brokenness and the stuff that you're experiencing that causes discontent, all of the bad stuff that you're experiencing in your life, I'm telling you right now that Jesus is the solution. It's done. Nothing else needs to happen. But, Philippians 3 says, we eagerly wait for Jesus to come back. Jesus is done. He's finished. The work is done. That's why one of his final words was, it is finished. I'm good. Mic drop. But we wait for Jesus to come back because we need mom to come and look at the knee, take the band-aid off, and celebrate that the healing has fully finished. There will be a day when Jesus comes back to this earth and he brings his kingdom with him. And on that day, there will be no more death, there will be no more cancer, there will be no more family brokenness, there will be no more systemic brokenness. There will be nothing that gives us a trace or a memory of the sin and the brokenness that we're experiencing right now. Until that day comes, we're in the tension of a kid with a band-aid on our knee waiting for healing. Now that helps us turn down the volume of circumstances, right? Because if you're, if you're a parent and you're trying to help your kid who just got a band-aid on your knee understand what life is going to be like after they get their, their bandage on, you're going to help them set the expectation for the next few days of living. When you bump your knee, it's going to hurt. Right? Nothing else needs to happen to fix it, but it's still going to hurt. You're going to have glimpses of pain even after the healing work is done. When that happens, that parent would say, don't think that I haven't done my work well. Don't think that the neosporin's not done. Don't think that the neosporin's not working, rather. Think, man, I'm so glad my mom has already fixed my knee. That hurt. That hurt a lot. I'm really glad that I can rest in a mom who knows how to take care of knees and there will be a day when my knee doesn't hurt anymore. And, and when you're walking one day and all of a sudden you went down the stairs and you realize, ooh, my knee didn't actually hurt that time. That's kind of nice. You can celebrate and say, man, my mom sure didn't know what she was doing when she put that neosporin on there. It's not fully healed yet, but it sure does feel better today than it did yesterday. I didn't bump it this time. It sets the expectation. You have this, this, this tension of you're going to experience some of the need for Jesus to come. Even after Jesus applies his work to your life, Christians will still experience sin and we will still experience brokenness and we'll still experience our need to be rescued. But we'll also see glimpses of what the kingdom will be like. We'll also see glimpses of the day when sin is completely separate from us and is no longer a reality. And we live in that tension. And contentment comes... Not from our circumstances, but from the truth and the knowledge and the assurance that there will be a day when Spider-Man Band-Aid falls off. You see why Paul says contentment's not in your circumstances? Because it's not a big enough lens. You put your tunnel vision on and you're only focused on the fact that your knee hurts. Or you put blinders on and you're trying to forget that your knee hurts. Paul says, zoom out, your knee hurts, but I already fixed it. Jesus already fixed it. Get a bigger perspective. Now, that helps us turn down the volume of circumstances, right? That helps circumstances perhaps have less power over us. And that's a really fun intellectual exercise. Isn't that good theology? I, I, I didn't make it up. That's in the Bible. So, I, 
if you just reframe your circumstances and help you understand that, that what you're experiencing now is not eternity, it won't uh, be as powerful and controlling in your life. That's a good intellectual exercise that's really hard to feel. Anybody? Really hard to feel. And that's why contentment in Christ can't just be an intellectual exercise. It's got to travel the 12 inches from your head into your heart. And that's why Paul starts off this sentence, starts off this conversation with, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. It's the same Greek word, in, that Paul used when he said, I've got uh, uh, strength through Christ. It's the same word. So what he's referencing is the same thing both times. What, what, he, what Christ did to turn down the circumstances, Paul also realized that, that, that Christ enabled him to rejoice. He rejoiced in the Lord. Not in the gift. In the giver. Here's what it feels like to experience the contentment. Here's how we receive the empowering grace of the Lord to experience this contentment through rejoicing. Now, you and I tend to think of rejoicing as spontaneous happiness. Based on what? Circumstances. Rejoicing isn't about circumstances. It's about rejoicing in the Lord. So what Paul could say was, there was a time when I was the same sinful rebel that Jesus needed to come save. There was a time when I was trying to hunt down and kill Christians for following Jesus. That's part of his story and his biography. There was a time where I was so much running away from the Lord, and you know what Jesus did for Paul? He chased him down. He gave up the luxury of heaven and he gave up the comforts and the contentment and all of the good circumstances of heaven in order to rescue rebels like Paul who didn't even want to be rescued. He overwhelmed Paul and showed him how much he was willing to love him. And on the cross, one of Jesus' final words was not just, it's finished, it was also, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus said that because it was at that moment that it became personal. It was at that moment that Jesus said, I'm going to trade places with you. I'm going to take on all of the punishment, all of the consequences for your rebellion. I'm going to take on all of the pain and all of the sin that you have experienced and that you have perpetuated. I'm going to accept all of that consequence, all of that wrath, all of that bad stuff on me. And I'm going to allow cosmic separation to distance myself from my Father. I'm going to go into the depths of discontent so that you might be content in what I've done for you. Christ empowers us to contentment by making it personal. By saying, whatever bad thing is going on, whatever difficult thing is going on, remember how ravenously you are loved by someone who would Come and say, what you're experiencing matters enough that I'm going to die for you so that you might live with me. And when Paul raised, or excuse me, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he confirmed that this is exactly what he's done. Contentment comes in Christ. That already but not yet turns down the volume and the personalization of what Jesus has done for us puts an earbud in our ear and says, there's a better truth than what you're experiencing right now. There's a deeper love than what you might feel that you need right now. There's something 
better. Contentment comes in Christ. So, you get your contentment from achievement. You've got to be successful. You've got to make sure that you get the next promotion. You've got to make sure that you keep achieving and keep working and you tunnel vision on it and you start to become a little bit of a workaholic. So what do you do? You turn down the volume. You say, I'm in the already but not yet. My workaholism is me trying to get my sense of worth from what I accomplish and that's never going to work because I can't accomplish enough. It's insatiable, but Jesus has done enough work to cover me for eternity. He has rescued me from my sin and from death. And what I can do at that point is say, ooh, even if I don't get the promotion, I have a God who has rescued me into eternity. Contentment comes in Christ. Now, I, I want to take a quick, like, 30-second break. That's good news, Okay? That's eternal good news that Jesus is a source of contentment that your circumstances can't touch. There is a brand of church that clouds that. There's a brand of church, and, and Americans have the, the, the reputation of having the privilege of starting this particular brand of church. And, and it goes by prosperity gospel. It goes by name it and claim it. It, it goes by a lot of different stuff, but it's, it's a lot of places. And what it says is, if you're discontent, if you don't have the health that you want, if you don't have the medical diagnosis that you want, if you don't have the money that you want or the, or, or the, the uh, enjoyment that you want, that's, that's because you don't have enough faith. God's interested in giving you all the circumstances that you want. Or what you need to do is get your faith life together and believe better, and then you will experience everything that you want. You know why that's bad news? Because it makes your contentment about you and about what you can contribute and about how well you believe. And it has nothing to do with what God is doing for you. It says that God is primarily interested in your circumstances on this side of eternity, not for the rest of your life with him in the kingdom of heaven. The prosperity gospel is bad news. But, but we tend to like the gifts more than the giver. We, we tend to want God to give us the stuff that we want. We, we don't tend to like the idea of, well, I'll just be satisfied in God. I'll be satisfied in what Jesus has done for me. It's easier to be satisfied in what Jesus has done for you if He gives you what you want. But that's not what this text says. It's better news than that. It's hard news, but it's better news than that. And this is where we'll close. Contentment is not about circumstances. It comes from being in Christ. It comes from, from seeing the, the, the scheme of eternity and seeing the personal nature of what Jesus has done for you. And as you've started to realize, it's not easy. It's not intuitive. It's hard to feel. This is where I want to sit for just a second. Paul isn't writing a memoir to himself. He's writing to a church in Philippi that is concerned. They see consequences and circumstances that are bothering them. Their beloved mentor and pastor might die. They care. That's an emotional weight that's going to make them either go tunnel vision or make them go blinder. And Paul isn't content to, to keep his contentment to himself. 
He uses the word, I've learned the secret of contentment. And that's a technical Greek word. Paul wrote in Greek. The word secret there is mysterion. It's where we get the word mystery. And it's not, I learned new knowledge. It's, I've been inducted into the secret society. That's what it means. And by Paul using the word, what he's saying is, I want to induct you into it too. I want to share this contentment with you. I want to infect you with the same contentment that the Lord has infected me. How many of you know what flu season is like where you just don't touch anybody for like months? Right, so I, 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 it's, it's going around. So, so my dad's been sick for the last few days and he came in and said, don't give me a hug just yet. I've been, I've been sick. Right, so you spread disease by being close. The big idea of this sermon, if you remember nothing else, from today, here's the phrase, contentment, Christian contentment, in Christ, that's where it comes from, is contagious. If you walk close enough to people and get to know their actual wounds and their actual pains and their actual hurts, and you have contentment in Christ, genuine contentment that transcends understandings, it'll leak. It'll spread like a virus. The rejoicing that Paul does, he doesn't do by himself. He rejoices with the Philippians in the glimpses of grace and he laments with the Philippians in the glimpses of, of, of pain. American churches, mine too, were really bad at lament. We're bad at looking at suffering and sitting in it and saying, this is why Jesus needs to come and to rage against it, and to be angry against it, and to say this is not right, and it's not okay, and that experience of your skinned knee is not the way it's supposed to be, and we sit and lament, and then say, praise the Lord, that's why Jesus came. Are there people that you're walking in this church? Are you walking close enough to people to lament with them? To know the stuff in their life that gives evidence of Jesus needing to rescue with them. The pain of the uh, child who's not going the way that they would want. The pain of the medical diagnosis that's seemingly wrecked their whole world. The pain of some sort of systemic problem that they're experiencing that we might not know what that experience is like. Does your contentment in Christ motivate you to lament and point to Jesus at the same time? What kind of church do we want to be? I'd be a church where the contentment in Christ is contagious. And in order for contentment in Christ to be contagious, you've got to walk close enough with people to know the depths of their hurt. And you've got to walk close enough with people to know the glories of the good stuff, to celebrate the glimpses of grace, to hold babies in your arm and say, this wouldn't happen unless Jesus was alive and God was real and he is the source of life. And you celebrate with the celebrations and you lament with the lamentations and you point all of them to the glimpses of the kingdom. The reality of our situation is that a church is not a bunch of individuals coming to their parent looking to get their knees fixed. It's a bunch of brothers and sisters coming to the same parent with various wounds. So you can look to your left and say, whew, that knee looks bad. Go see mom. I, she fixed mine too. I, come on, go, let's go see mom. 
That's bad. You don't discredit it. You don't blinder it. But you don't tunnel vision on it either. You don't sit there and go, Whoo, you better fix that on your own. I don't know how that's going to work. You say, that's bad. That counts and that matters. And God loved you enough to come and die for you to fix it. Let's go see him. He's got something to say. Church is a group of brothers and sisters that walk closely enough to remind each other. And you're going to need each other because this ain't easy. You're going to need each other to be content. You're going to need each other to fight for each other, to fight for this contentment because we tend to go tunnel vision and we tend to go blinder and Jesus has a better word. You can be content no matter what circumstances come your way. Not ignoring the circumstances, feeling them fully, and still trusting that he's coming back to bring his kingdom. Contentment in Christ is contagious. So when you come to this table, ask yourself, where do you tunnel vision? Where do you tend to not trust that Jesus is enough? That, he, that, that, that your mom actually fixed your knee? Where do you feel like you've got to fix it on your own? Where, where, where do you blind her? Where are you trying to ignore the wounds? And and where in your world, in the church, in your community, where in your world can you walk close enough with people to point them to mama who's armed with Spider-Man band-aids and Neosporin? That's the good news. Contentment in Christ is contagious, y'all. Let it spread. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know many of the people in this room. I would guess that at least half of them are facing some kind of crisis. They're, they're, they're panicked and wrecked with anxiety over some situation that they can't figure out how to fix. For those that might be experiencing that and don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would give them a glimpse of what it would be like to hold that anxiety more loosely to turn it over to a God who rescues people from sin and death, a God who has come to fix the world, but fix it through people who turn from sin and to turn to Him. Would you help people confess their need for you and to receive the gift of you this morning? And for those, Lord, that that are are going through difficult circumstances that do know who you are, Lord, I pray that, that you would guard their hearts so that the circumstances wouldn't shout louder than your word and the truth of who you are and what you're doing and what you promise to do. May your kingdom be glimpsed in this church. May this church be a group of people that help one another go to their parent armed with the Neosporin and Spider-Man Band-Aid of your life, death, and resurrection. May we live with contentment in the midst of the already but not yet so that your good news might spread like a virus. In Jesus' name, amen.